Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Cries of deliverance pour from the pages of the Old Testament, particularly through Psalms. And these aren't empty cries. These are cries from a scribe who knows in whom they have trusted. May we never tire of faith. May we never tire of hope. May we never tire of prayer. The Savior's mercy extends far beyond the reaches of our own understanding. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. There's been many times that I have asked for Heavenly Father to deliver me from whatever trial I'm facing at the time. And it's usually after I've prayed, gone to the temple, fasted, read my scriptures, done everything that I could. And a lot of times it's finally I cry out, Heavenly Father, I can't do this by myself. I need help. And at that point, um, the peace comes and I do get help. A lot of times it is in His time. When I was in college, I had a really, really difficult first semester. And I, one night, I just had a complete breakdown and called my mom. It was 3 a.m. And she's like, well, when, when was the last time you prayed? And I honestly couldn't remember. <laughs> but uh, she taught me and I learned that day to just get on my knees and pray. And as I prayed, I really felt delivered, like that prayer of deliverance from all of that pain and stress. And it kind of went away for a bit. And I knew that I could, I could do it. Welcome everyone, thank you for being here today. Today's discussion topics come from our studies of Psalms 49 through 86. And uh, the two main topics we're gonna discuss today are Psalms as prayers of deliverance, and because of the Savior's mercy, I can be forgiven of my sins. And to help us with our discussion today, we wanna first welcome Sean Hopkin. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Sean is the department chair of ancient scripture at BYU and has a PhD in Hebrew studies from the University of Texas. And seated next to Sean, we have our special guest, Lance Larson. And Lance is a professor of English at BYU and teaches literature, creative writing, and poetry. So thank you both for being here. So let's dive into our first topic, which is Psalms as prayers of deliverance. Sean, I'm gonna toss to you right now and kind of allow you to kind of expound on this as this group of Psalms specifically dealing with this deliverance aspect. Well, so if you think of uh, someone with a variety of needs and there's a lot of different, so many different needs expressed there that we can find ourselves pretty easily in the Psalms when we think of times in our lives when we needed help, but there's uh, royal Psalms where it, it seems to be the king that is in need of deliverance and he's thinking about his people. We might think of our families in those kind of situations. There's Psalms uh, where it's a very personal need of a sense of uncleanness or of, of unholiness before the Lord, a desire for cleansing, for forgiveness. Uh, and then just distress, general distress. And so you see a, a, a lot of those themes really percolating through and, and I think for all of us, we can find favorite Psalms that just really express different moments in our lives um, because it, it is a wide variety of experiences that, that's represented in the, in the Psalms. And it, um, uh, Lance, how are these Psalms used specifically with prayers of deliverance? 
course, it depends on the particular psalm. They're laid out in, in different ways. But I think a typical psalm will begin with the dilemma or the, the, the challenge that a particular writer faces, whether that's David or Moses or someone else. And I like that they're often a remembrance. So there's often a catalog of the way that the Lord has helped in the past. And then they'll move forward and ask a petition. And often there'll be a return to some of the earlier dilemmas. And then by the end, um, either the David or whoever it might be will feel as if their prayer has been answered or they will at least acknowledge the Lord and anticipate that their prayer will be answered. So there's a kind of arc to the particular, um, each particular psalm. Why now do we have this specific style inserted in the scriptures? Um, how did they use poetry in expressing their, their feelings and their prayers? Well, I, th I think one thing that's kind of interesting specifically about um, these kind of prayers that are urgent, it's not as if somebody sat down and, and prayed and, and we had a scribe that wrote down exactly what happened. There's a lot of artifice involved in them, a lot of conventions. And so on the one hand, you have the spontaneity of a prayer, but then you have the formal ornateness of, of poetry. And those two things come together in interesting ways. And so um, they reward a close reading. If you, as, if you, as you understand the conventions, um, a lot more meaning will reveal itself um, if you're patient and you tease those out through multiple readings. I love where there's this deep preparation with the psalm. So it's not just this moment, but then it's written down. And I, I like thinking of the dedicatory prayer that Joseph Smith gives uh, at the Kirtland Temple dedication, right? Where it's written down and he reads it, but it's a prayer that comes from the heart. So there's revelation, but it's revelation that's come and then it's felt at the time, but there's also preparation, right? It's, it's written, it's composed, and it's really beautiful. And so how they help us today, I think we, we as Latter-day Saints are, are accustomed to reading the Book of Mormon most often, and we've got a narrative, and it goes through the narrative, and then you get a little moment where Nephi is expressing his own psalm, but it sort of fits into this storyline, and, and the Bible's just organized differently than that. You've got a narrative section, the history, and now we're in the Ketuvim, the writings uh, section, where I, I often tell people, if you're discouraged, if you're depressed, if you're struggling in sort of a valley of, of challenges, go to the Psalms and you will find solace there. You'll, you'll feel them reflecting the, the, the desires of your heart. Thank you for sharing that. As we're talking about Psalms of Deliverance, uh, specifically from this middle chunk, do you have a favorite Psalm that you have used in a time of, of need or when you're feeling down to kind of use one of these Psalms as a pick-me-up? Tiffany, please. So I've actually struggled with depression through most of my life. And one of the Psalms that's really helped me through that is Psalm 54, 22. It says, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. I love that Psalm. And I love what you guys were saying about applying the Psalms to us. I actually am a songwriter and through studying this, this um, prompted me to write a song about my experience with depression. And like you said, it's, it's a prayer. The song is a prayer, but it's very much kind of me reflecting on everything that the Lord has done for me and putting it all into one message that hopefully others can relate to. 
And have you been able to use your own personal song to kind of help others in their times of need? I have, actually. Um, I've, I actually released it, and I have some friends who immediately came back to me and said, this is exactly what I needed to hear today. And I don't think that's me. I think that's the Spirit leading, leading me as he led the writers of the Psalms to write down truth uh, from the Spirit that can touch the hearts of men. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Now, we've talked about Psalms as kind of these spontaneous, like emergency prayers. Um, how do we feel about offering, you know, these types of prayers, you know, just on the fly. I actually have an experience. I would love to hear it. Um, This happened three or four years ago. I was driving to school and had actually missed my morning prayers. So I started to pray while I was driving and I was going to meet with a lot of students. So I said, I pray that I can be of service to someone. As I was cresting this hill, I looked over to the right and there's a, a pickup pulled over to the side of the road with a woman looking at the her tire, which was flat. And I sped up a little to go through the green light. (laughs) And I thought, that's not so good. And I was literally hoping that somebody, maybe a cowboy mechanic in a truck, um, (laughs) would have come to her rescue. But by the time I got there, no one was there. So I pulled over and turned out she didn't have a spare. So I said, well, let's drive to this mechanic and see what he has to say. He arranged a a tow truck and arranged to have the tire fixed. It was this remarkable experience. Um, But that was a prayer on the fly and it wasn't answered in the way that I hoped it would be. I I wanted to do my service in my office on my terms. (laughs) Um, But as it was, that's the person who needed help. And if I hadn't been praying, I probably would have passed her by, I think. So what do you think the, the role of the Holy Ghost plays in moments like that for you? It's a prompt, it's a prick, and we don't always follow it. Um, And I I guess the takeaway for me was those experiences are probably available to us all the time Mm. or pretty frequently, but we don't always, you know, avail ourselves of listening to the still small voice. As we focus on this topic of psalms as prayers of deliverance, what advice would you give to those that are seeking for some sort of deliverance and they're watching this and thinking, okay, well, Psalms are prayers of deliverance. How can I use these in my own personal life? I was just looking through this this morning, Psalm 63. Oh God, thou art my God, early will I seek after thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. What that models for me is that I think often we are embarrassed of our emotions, we're embarrassed of our need, we don't want to be someone in need, we wanna just be strong. And there's some, there's a depth here, and I think, has my soul, have I, would I ever express it this way? Can I get more in touch with what my needs are and live that and let it be expressed in my prayers um, more deeply? Um, so in other words, to dig into our need instead of sort of pretending that that's not the case, to feel it and then to let God um, rescue us in the midst of that, to let him come to us and, and comfort us and console us. Thank you. Uh, we actually had a question from one of our viewers and we'll get some of your thoughts on that. This is Travis from Torrance, California. My question 
is Psalms were written different than most scripture. Should we be studying it any differently? Psalms poetry does not reward rapid reading. That is not how this is designed. This is designed to, oh, there's a metaphor there, there's symbolism there, what does that do for me? And to pause and say, well, what are the different ways that I see those symbols playing out in my life? And what is the writer expressing? That takes time and it just won't reward lazy reading. It just doesn't, uh, uh, it rewards deep introspective reading. And because there is no storyline to follow you, you know, like you were saying earlier, Lance, they are written in a different manner. So you kind of have, you assume you have to study a little bit different. Another thing is, I think if you pay attention to some of the conventions of Hebrew poetry, including parallelism, you can derive more meaning. So for instance, in Psalm 49, you see this in the first three or four verses. Hear this, all ye people, give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world. If you notice, there's a kind of pivot that takes place in the middle of that first verse, right after the semicolon. So at the beginning, you have um, a command, hear this, all ye people. That gets repeated as, give ear, all ye inhabitants. Same thing happens in verse 2. Both low and high, rich and poor. There's a kind of extension that takes place to be more inclusive. And then 3, I think, is, is a wonderful example along the same lines. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I particularly like the way that there's a movement from outward speech to inner meditation. So there's a movement from the outside to the inside. And there are parallelisms like this all the way through the Psalms. It's like the go-to technique. And if you slow down just a little bit, you'll understand... Um, the scriptures more fully. And I might add, you can hear those poetic lines, right? Yeah. So we, we're getting it in, in English, uh, and Hebrew doesn't uh, have rhyming patterns in the same way that we would think of as uh, you know, what we're used to with poetry, right. uh, English poetry. Um, but you can hear the sort of pattern developing, these lines that then build on the previous line. Sometimes they conclude, uh, it sort of builds to a point. Other times they contrast with each other. Yeah. This will help you with Isaiah. It'll help you in so many places. You know, a famous verse for us, um, even though I'm, I'm in Isaiah now, but it's just so familiar. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be wool. And he's not saying exactly the same thing, right? He's He's coming at it from a little bit of a different angle and it builds this really beautiful, profound picture. And, and so, I, you know, th this gentleman's question, uh, it, it, you do read it differently. You gotta think about how the poetry builds. So the Psalms are prayers of deliverance, but who is doing the delivering? And in 70, Psalm 70, uh, it says, make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Sometimes, uh, we forget that on the other, other end of that, there is somebody waiting. You know, it reminds me of a quote from Elder Holland as he talks about the Savior's need to deliver us as we ask for deliverance. And he says this, Sucker is used often in the scriptures to describe Christ's care for and attention to us. It means literally to run to. What a magnificent way to describe the Savior's urgent effort in our behalf. Even as he calls us to come to him and follow him, he is unfailingly running to help us. Do we see this idea of 
the Savior is the one that we're supposed to turn to. Honestly, I think you, you almost pick a psalm and, and it's there. And, and one of the things that you're pointing out that I, I love about the psalms is that it doesn't stop with the plea it moves to an expression of faith and trust. Okay. And it's one thing to suffer, but suffering doesn't have necessarily inherent meaning unless there is deliverance at some point from that suffering. And there is a deliverer. There is one to deliver. And the Psalms never lose sight of that fact that God has power to save. Thank you. Lance. Sometimes um, the Psalms invite God to save us from our enemies or from those who are against us, but sometimes to save us from ourselves. Um, and I, I ran into a couple, if you don't mind my reading Please. you here. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words. So he uses this warlike imagery, and if you're not paying attention, you might just think, oh, this is about battle. But actually, the metaphors are being used to describe people plotting and talking against someone. This particular psalm seems especially pertinent to our current moment, where people mm -hmm. are shaming online, lots of decisions are being made against us um, behind closed doors. And so uh, it just strikes me that our enemies can be in a variety of places, and in this particular case, um, it's words that are the enemy, and Christ can save us there as well. If you read further down, you realize that the people who are plotting will have their words turned against them, and that Christ will essentially be the final sword in this, this battle. It's amazing how we can take this different style, and it can be applicable in so many different ways, because we, we are different learners, and we all learn our own method. Well, thank you so much for your comments. This has been a great discussion on this first topic of Psalms as prayers of deliverance. Forgiveness is very important because I, I come from a psychology background. And I think a lot of people uh, who don't forgive and don't even know the processes of that uh, bury it in their souls, in their minds, and in their hearts. And it comes out as uh, uh, depression, uh, psychosis, anything of that nature. If you don't forgive people, you, you horror up the anger, and I think it gets worse over time. Forgiveness can bring us closer to our Savior or loved ones or whoever we've wronged. Um, just by that connection, that overwhelming feeling of when you know you've done something wrong or trespassed or made a mistake, and they're willing to look beyond that and see you for who you are as a daughter or a son of God, and to be able to um, forget maybe the mistake or whatever happened between the two of you, and it just makes that bond a little stronger. So our second topic is, because of our Savior's mercy, I can be forgiven of my sins. And we see with these Psalms that oftentimes they are pleas, they are cries uh, for help. And I think specifically with uh, 51, we really get some insight into this topic specifically. Uh, Sean, you wanna give us a little background on, on 51 specifically and how it helps understand forgiveness and mercy. So I want you to imagine that um, you're David and you've, you're on the other side of what has been 
just a horrendous uh, backtracking of what his fundamental values are and who he always was. And then he has let the power and his desires overcome him. Uh, and he's in a deep uh, well of, of sort of self-blaming and shame and, and regret and guilt. And he, he was a psalmist. Imagine him uh, sitting down and, and expressing that as he, he composes Psalm 51. And, and I think when we think about David's experience, it actually enhances then the application to our situation because I've done things that don't reflect my values and I'm afraid I'll, I'll keep doing them, and I, and, and, but I wanna recognize it and express it and, and return and, and return to that relationship with the Lord that has just disappeared in my life. And, and so hearing David, thinking of David's experience as uh, we're walking through this Psalm, I think helps us think of all the times that we have done something that we deeply regret. You know, it's interesting that you say that because you know, as we constantly try to apply the scriptures to ourselves, as you were speaking, I was thinking, we really do get to learn David, where he's coming from because of what he is saying in these, in these, uh, these verses. What I particularly like about this is that David makes these verses extremely vivid by the devices that he uses. Let me go to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I love the way that he uses imagery of what's inside, in, internal. It's not something that happens outside. And I think that that's what happens when we accept Christ, right? We, we go through um, certain rituals when we're baptized. That's an outer um, commitment, but that betokens an inner commitment. And so when he talks about this new heart, that's a change that is inside of him. And it's we can imagine the heart, which is you know, the seat of the emotions. That's much more powerful um, than just saying, yeah, I'll do what's right. Um, so again and again, I think he does that sort of thing here. Do we gain some knowledge about how sincere he is because he's taking his time to make it poetic? Absolutely, I think so. Yeah, that, that working with the different senses and the way I have, if you can think of a, a fragrance that all of a sudden you feel right. awake and alive and he's, he's doing different things that just help express the, the deep yearnings of the heart. Now, you had mentioned earlier uh, in some of those verses about the heart. In some of these later verses, uh, specifically in 16 and 17, it talks about a, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. What can you uh, teach us about these verses and what's the image or the message that David, David is trying to, uh, to create for all of us? Well, I'm, frankly, I was kind of surprised to find this verse here because when we hear about a broken heart and contrite spirit, we associate that with the New Testament, that there's a movement from these ritualistic sacrifices which are done in an outward fashion, um, often vicariously for a people but instead, what needs to happen is now we need to sacrifice individually, and this has to take place on a person-to-person -person basis. So I just think that that movement is interesting, and I think it anticipates uh, a movement from Old Testament law to New Testament spirit, which Christ will usher in. Well, I might add this idea of, of a broken heart, if you think of uh, our, the sacrament uh, ordinance for us, there's a, a altar of sacrifice there that those emblems are placed on. And it was uh, Jesus's heart that broke 
for out of love uh, for us as he experiences our sorrows. And, and the ideas we approach that table, in an Old Testament times, you bring the lamb, and now the, the teachers, you know, in, in each ward bring the bread because Christ has provided the broken sacrifice. But then it's not a full experience if we aren't also bringing, and you might say breaking our hearts and placing it on that altar. And then God gives us a new heart. He wakes us up with this bracing snow and, and places a, a new beating heart in our chest and we're, we're alive again. There's something about the, the union of suffering. That's beautiful, thank you for sharing that. Uh, we have a quote that helps add from uh, Elder Bruce D. Porter about this idea of a broken heart. And uh, Elder Porter says, David's words show that even in Old Testament times, the Lord's people understood that their hearts must be given to God, that burnt offerings alone were not enough. Christ's example teaches us that a broken heart is an eternal attribute of godliness. When our hearts are broken, we are completely open to the Spirit of God and recognize our dependence on Him for all that we have and all that we are. The sacrifice so entailed is a sacrifice of pride in all its forms. Like malleable clay in the hands of a skilled potter, the brokenhearted can be molded and shaped in the hands of the master. I would love just to get some of your thoughts on what it means to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Lisa. To be able to do that, we humble ourselves before God and all we have left to give God because he gave us everything is our will. And so by doing that, we have to get to the point where we do get away from pride and everything else and our own desires. And how did you come to learn that for yourself? Um, through trials. <laughs> and when I think of overcoming them, I think that we're here to learn and that we, only, we learn more through trials when things are hard than when things are going really well. And so when I'm in a trial or a family member is going through a trial, I try to go, okay, why don't we pray to Heavenly Father and find out what He wants and what are we going to learn? And it isn't necessarily the trial, it's how you handle the trial. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, other thoughts from the audience? Ash, go ahead. So I really liked when you said that we are completely open to him because I really think that once you do that, it takes a lot of faith to know that your heart will not stay broken, that he will, like you said, kind of give you a new heart. And so what kind of life experience has taught you that? I think loss of friends and family, you know, like everyone says that they're in a better spot, but you're still hurt. But it mm -hmm. takes that faith to know that it will be okay. They're okay. And so Ash, are there some specific things that you do to, to keep moving forward when you go through something like that? I think just really reminding myself that no matter what hard trials I go through, I chose to be here. And so I, I knew that I could do it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. So what else can we learn about forgiveness and repentance? Uh, one thing, if we go to verse 13 of chapter 51, then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Anybody who has served a mission will know that if you are converted to a particular principle or you have lived it or you have felt forgiveness, that you can talk about that with some kind of fervor and, and authority when you're teaching people. 
And so I think that's um, why missionaries so often succeed more towards the end of their mission is that they've lived a lot of these experiences and been transformed. And then they want to share that with others. That's great. Thank you. Sean? So, uh, and I love that as well, that there's movement here. It's not just, um, as Ash was saying, it's not just sort of suffering forever. No, there's trust that a new heart will come. And then then you learn something that then you can turn around and pay it forward, so to speak, by saying, I've been through a time that I didn't know I'd make it through and I made it through. And I, I believe that there are better days to come for you. So that turning to say repentance is worth it. And repentance isn't just about suffering. Repentance is about joy and peace and renewal and, and strength. Uh, I, I, that's really powerful to me. What does that change look like and how do you get there? So there is something about recognizing error that is painful, but that when it's tied to faith, there's a sweetness to it. It's not just dark, it's not just shame, but there's, there's hope that that recognition, the pain will transform into greater glory, greater power on the other side. And for me, um, that has been the case as I've felt um, sorrow for my sins and have turned to the Lord. He's given me hope and then he's given me joy on the other side and, and, and increased confidence more so than what I felt before my sin. Now, is it just with sin or are there other... That's what I know about best. But, yeah. <laughs> but you know, in other, other situations, you know, that we, we need that change. It's not always yeah. because of our sins. It's just because of our life circumstance. Sure. Uh, Ash was talking about loss, mm-hmm. uh, the loss of family members. I've lost a family member uh, recently, a uh, close uh, best friend, uh, brother. And um, excuse me, there's pain there. And then there's uh, transformation uh, and hope that comes uh, to the reality that there's a deliverer uh, on the other side of that. And uh, I rejoice, although I would long for uh, that uh, relationship to be restored now. I rejoice in the confidence that comes through the Spirit that He is delivered, that I will be delivered, and uh, that things can be restored. Thanks for sharing that, Sean. Really, you can feel... Everything always comes back to our need for, for a Savior in, in times of sin, in times of sorrow, whether it be from, you know, things that we do or just things that happen to us. And so I appreciate you sharing that. You know, we have a, we have a great quote from Sister Carol Stevens, and she says, When we come to Him with humble and teachable hearts, even if our hearts are heavy with mistakes, sins, and transgressions, He can change us. For he is mighty to save. And with hearts changed, we can, like the Samaritan woman, go into our cities, our homes, schools, and workplaces to witness of him. You know, and we see with David, he's trying to change. His heart has changed because of the pleadings that we are, we are seeing through him as he's begging, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, uh, to be forgiven of, of his sins and of, and of his mistakes. As, as we're trying to help people better understand the Psalms, uh, what else would you point them to uh, to better understand their uh, desires and needs for forgiveness and mercy? I don't know if this is exactly on point, but um, I have to go back to my mission to recite this, this story. But in my first area in Santiago, Chile, uh, I felt inadequate, as most beginning missionaries do. I didn't have the language very well. 
having partial success. But I remember um, in the evenings, we had this big sector, and often the lights would go out about 10 o'clock, so there were no street lights, no lights, any, the electricity was out. And we were tired and hungry, cold. And I had this missionary companion who had the gall to sing hymns as we were walking home. <laughs> Last thing I wanted to do in the world. I was not a singer anyway, um, but I, we started singing. I started singing with him, and it was amazing how that small gesture would lift spirits. How has that experience helped carry you through other times? Well, um, in memory it serves because you realize uh, the Lord was there. I guess in a more broad sense, it reminds me that um, there are certain activities that will bring the Spirit. You know, singing, reading the Scriptures, having a conversation with someone, going to the temple. Um, and I guess at the heart of it, we become not hearers of the Word only, but doers, right? Anytime that you can enact, um, do, do something, um, choose to do something, I think that you bring the spirit in. It's just a reminder how quick your spirit can change, if you're willing. Thank you for sharing that, Lance. I'm excited to discuss further some of these Psalms in our footnotes portion uh, of the episode. And thank you all for your comments. This has been a great discussion on a topic, because of the Savior's mercy, I can be forgiven of my sins. Participating in Come Follow Up today, I really enjoyed it because there were a lot of strong and powerful things said, and I felt the spirit a lot, and it was just a nice experience. Today from Come Follow Up, I learned that I want to have that connection with my Heavenly Father like David did, that open communication and constant connection with Him. The Psalms are not something I've turned to before, but I have now learned that I need to not just read through them quickly, that I need to look at them and study and think about them, and that if I sing them, that that is also, a, you can feel it in your whole body. And I have a new way when I'm struggling with different things in my life that I can go to now that I did not ever think about before. So I really appreciate it. It's been an uplifting and learning experience for me today. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. Uh, this is a great time where we can revisit some of the things we've talked about and then explore some of the things as well. And one of the topics we were talking about was this theme of deliverance. And uh, I kind of wanted to jump into that again a little bit more. And Sean, do you mind kind of giving us a little bit of a background, specifically with David and how we get into this theme of deliverance through his writings? With David, he's so richly portrayed in the Hebrew Bible, but uh, it starts young where he's, he trusts in the Lord and he's this vibrant youth who is delivered and helps deliver sheep out of the hands of the lion and the bear, you know, out of the paws of the lion and the bear. And uh, then it continues on and he uses music with King Saul uh, to soothe this sort of a depressive or evil spirit that sort of comes upon Saul. And so he, he probably trained in music and using music connected to deliverance early on. Um, and then of course, as he shifts from that sort of pastoral David, the humble uh, but vibrant David to kingly David, he's still very lovable, but you do see this shift where the power begins to seem, seems anyway, to have a real impact on him and he begins to believe he can have whatever he wants and he falls then uh, into then uh, 
behaviors that go against his fundamental principles. And he is so lovable and loving throughout mm -hmm. his storyline. And then he's not him. He's just not himself. Um, and then on the other side of that, this deep sense of mourning that you see reflected in, in the Psalms of how do I, how do I get back to that innocence, that childish faith and trust and innocence and, and yearning for that uh, connection with God, yearning for a sense of purity, for a sense of clean purpose. So he's, he's really a fascinating figure for us in so many ways to learn from, and, and he connects well with the Psalms. Do we see, um, you know, from, you know, I'm, I'm sure as a, as a poet and a writer, you're able to make a lot of these connections. Where do we see this same type of writing appear in other scriptures? Maybe the most obvious example would be in the New Testament, right? Um, I think the Psalms show up a hundred times in the New Testament. Does, does that number sound right? I... 116, we, we, okay. we right. checked. <laughs> okay, yes, so we're, we're right there. You just pulled yeah. that up from the top of your head? That's amazing, <laughs> Sean. Yes. Um, so I wanted to go to one example. Um, this is Psalm 22:18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Very low-key, innocent, doesn't seem like much. But then we move forward, and this shows up in all four Gospels. Uh, maybe most poignantly in John 19, 23, and 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it whose it shall be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them. And for my vesture, they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. What I find remarkable about this is that this tiny scripture from the Old Testament takes up more room and is amplified here and is part of a larger narrative. And I, I just want to grab the soldiers by their lapels and say, do you know what you're doing? You're going to show up in history, and this is, this is the best that you can do. Hmm. And, of course, um, it's just so poignant. It's a kind of bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I always like to find these messianic lines in the Psalms and elsewhere. You see it in Isaiah as well. Um, because it reminds me that these scriptures are forward-looking and, and reminds us again that the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, is Christ embodied in the New Testament. What about in, as far as the Book of Mormon, you know, we've talked about the Psalm of Nephi. What do we gain from, from his version, from his Psalm? How does that add to our understanding of how we can use these Psalms as deliverance? It's so beautiful to have it to, available to us. And, and honestly, it's so ancient in its format. It's very psalmic, so to speak, right? It, it, it looks like an ancient psalm should look and feels like it. And so it moves from this um, sort of Nephi's discouragement, his depression into this, but, but God has blessed me, sort of he's working on his confidence and then he pleads with God and then this triumphant, God will save me. I, this is going to happen. And, and what a model for us. And when I've uh, served uh, in the church, I've sometimes told people, if, if you're struggling with discouragement, 
Nephi Psalm. That, that's where you got to go, and that'll go go there day after day after day. That'll lift you. I love that. Um, sometimes my training leads me to think about um, scriptural characters that we meet as fictional characters. They're not fictional, but we take them apart sometimes and put them back together in a similar way. And there are certain characters who are kind of flat. That is, they're known for one particular characteristic and those who are round, who are contradictory and multivalent. David being the perfect example, yes. maybe okay. the most yes. multivalent character in the scriptures. Joseph of Egypt. Jo- yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I think sometimes what happens with Nephi, because he is so vibrant, so obedient, so stoic, always does the right thing, we think of him as being superhuman. And so you, you get these stories of uh, this narration that's mostly in third person. Then we get to the psalm, and there's a shift from outside perspectives to interiorization. This is equivalent, really, in a way, to a journal entry, and, and he's bearing all. And I think what's fascinating about it is that this is made possible by the form itself, right? So we get a different kind, a different perspective on him because he shifts from narrative to the psalm, which is essentially a kind of prayer, right, and and a poem. As you were talking, it made me think of the church's efforts to understand that our heroes are nuanced and multivalent because then you can say, okay, I can see myself in that. Maybe I can be a hero. And, and so you see the, the saints, uh, the, the church history work that the church is doing does a lot of this sort of Nephi Psalm kind of work with church history. We say they're, they're even more heroic knowing that they have these deep feelings. That's and, a, and I appreciate it. I love that you said that. You know, we have this uh, bringing up Nephi and his uh, his psalm and these these lamentations, um, this crying out. Uh, I'm reminded of in the Doctrine and Covenants. Could you call what Joseph Smith is doing? Is is that considered a psalm? And as he's in Liberty Jail. Yeah. As I recall, I was reading this a couple of days ago, and I think it follows the same psalmic pattern of lots of parallelism. Oh God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion? that covereth thy hiding place. How long shall thy hand be stayed in thine eye? Yea, thy pure eye. Behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries. Yea, O Lord, how long shall they suffer these wrongs and unlawful oppressions before in thine heart shall be softened toward them, and thy bowels be moved with compassion toward them? O Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven, earth, and seas, and of all things that in them are, and who controllest and subjectest the devil in the dark and benighted dominion of school, stretch forth thy hand, let thine eye pierce, and thy pavilion be taken up. Let thy hiding place no longer be covered. Let thine ear be inclined. Let thine heart be softened, and thy bowels moved with compassion toward us. Let thine anger be kindled against our enemies, and in the fury of thine heart, with thy sword, avenge us of our wrongs. Remember thy suffering saints, O our God, and thy servants will rejoice in thy name forever. So what strikes me about that is that he falls into some of those Old Testament cadences, and there are certain parallels here. We also see um, the use of an Old Testament trope or device, that is anaphora, uh, rhyme that comes at the beginning of lines, right? So 
uh, where he says, let thine anger be kindled, let this, let this. That's very much an Old Testament device, right? The rhyme's coming at the beginning rather than at the end of the lines. So, and I might add, if we could uh, talk about a little bit of the format of some of the Psalms that would have been sung uh, maybe as people are ascending the steps, and the steps up to the the temple in Jerusalem are uneven. They follow probably the hill line, and then rather than evening it out, they left them so that you have to ponder that. Um, and then the Levites often would have been arranged on the steps leading directly into the temple, uh, or it's just outside of that that uh, the outer courtyard of the temple. Um, singing uh, psalms. And, and so you're, you're ascending into the temple and there would have been music in the background. And some of that singing would have been what we call antiphonal uh, or call and response where, yeah, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. So question, answer, and this beautiful back and forth. Sort of like the call and response that you see in Protestant churches today. Yes, right? absolutely. And those beautiful uh, renditions. And and I sort of like thinking of Doctrine and Covenants 121 of a call and response. It's a little bit lengthier right. to your point, right? right? But this call and then an actual response to the prayer. Uh, then then you will, will you call out, as Isaiah might say, and I will respond, right? Mm. Uh, and there's something beautiful and, in a sense, psalmic about, about that. That's nice. I like that. So how can our understanding of poetry and literary styles help us understand how we can use these scriptures to help draw us closer to the Savior, in a sense, as a prayer of deliverance. Uh, a favorite definition of poetry that I, I like to go to uh, was written by William Carlos Williams, an early 20th century poet and doctor in New Jersey. He described a poem as a small or large machine made out of words. <laughs> and I would say that that holds true for poetry of that day, but it also holds true for psalms. They are a small or large machine made out of words. And I think that machine, in this case, is to draw us closer to God. Okay. Um, the more that we can know about that machine, how it works, probably um, the more opportunities we give ourselves to grow closer to God. So I think it's worth paying attention to some of these devices that we've discussed and paying attention to the history. So if we can historicize things and figure out what these scriptures or what these psalms might have meant to the people then, and we have a better chance of applying them to us in a way that is, is rich and multivalent um, and not in a simplistic way. And I think those Old Testament scriptures will dovetail more richly with our own daily experience as a result. It strikes me, Christ is the multivalent one, right? right. Uh, the, the, the perfect one who's descended below all things, who has experienced, in a sense, all sin, and yet is holy, the Father and the Son. Uh, and so I love this idea of multivalence and how what, what you see with the Psalms does draw us to the holy one, mm. to the, the multivalent one, so to, so to speak. I love that. I appreciate that. You know, Sean, you had, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Psalm 51, oh. 17, with the idea of the, the sacrifice. Can you go into a little more on that? Well, so w let me just mention, we were talking about psalms of deliverance. Mm -hmm. And uh, these psalms as a prayer of emergency almost. There's this deeply felt urgent need. And it struck me that scripturally, you often see these psalms and these prayers, people bring their urgent needs to the temple. 
Um, and that's, you can see that's what's happening here in Psalm 51, because at the end, um, he's talking about animal sacrifice here. Um, then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall thy, they offer bullocks upon thine altar. So you've got actual temple, uh, ancient law of Moses, uh, temple ordinances and rituals here. So, but you have Hannah. Where does she go to sing her psalms, to say her prayers, to plead? Urgently, she takes to the temple. Hezekiah, when Assyria has approached, he goes straight to the temple and he offers this really powerful in, in uh, uh, Isaiah 37, this really beautiful psalm-like prayer there in the temple out of urgent need. And then I just wanted to link that for a moment, that reality that we can run to sacred places to offer our prayers to the Lord. And I wanted to talk about animal sacrifice for just a moment and how poignant if we're looking, this urgent need of weighed down by sin. And if I am carrying a lamb and then I have to watch that innocent lamb who is probably quite familiar to me be offered that and, and be broken. Uh, and I'm the one who committed the sin, um, that would change me. That would break my heart. I would never want to sin again. I probably would sin again. I would never, I would break my heart as that lamb was broken on my behalf. And, and then I think of the way Christ meets us and as we contemplate him in our ordinance of the sacrament, his broken body and his shed blood, do I have that same reaction that my heart breaks? I will never sin again uh, because my actions caused that innocent one to suffer on my behalf. Um, I, I just think there's some beauty to, to connecting with the temple uh, symbolism and the temple behaviors that would have happened anciently and that we still engage in in different ways uh, today. As I'm sitting here listening to both of you speak, I can't help but be envious of the insights that you have added to this conversation. I just, I'd love to get from both of you, you know, why have you dedicated your life as far as your professional life to doing what you do, to studying, whether it's writing, poetry, ancient scripture, all, all these things, what has led you uh, to pursue uh, these endeavors? I can encapsulate it simply by describing um, my sophomore year at BYU. Um, I was a student trying to keep my scholarship, cramming for tests, putting out this fire and then the next fire. And often I'd keep up late nights, stay mm -hmm. up till three in the morning. I found when I was staying up at three o'clock in the morning to study for geology exams, I was not very happy. <laughs> but when I was writing, when there was an assignment doing my creative writing class or even in my writing 150 class, um, I didn't mind so much staying up. There was a kind of compensation, kind of a thrill to it. And based on that experience, I changed my major to English. And it also allowed me to pursue my interest in the scriptures. I mean, what I discovered on my mission is that I was kind of a, a junkie for quotes. I mean, this was before the internet. I remember making a discovery um, in the New Testament. You know, we have the article of faith, um, number 13. You know, we believe all things, we hope mm. all things. I knew that Paul had said that. I mean, I'd memorized this since I was 12, but then it was in my New Testament in one of those letters. I, wait, th this is great. And then 
just making those kinds of discoveries mm-hmm. and noting that um, language played a part in that and that the way you said a thing affected the ability to persuade somebody or to be persuaded by the scriptures, that was really what set me going, I guess. And do you feel that this path has strengthened your relationship with God through studying literature or poetry? I, th- I think it has, absolutely. Uh, I think one of the challenges with higher education in general, though, is that it increases the chance that you're going to rely on the arm of flesh. It's worthwhile to pursue these sorts of things, but you always have to check your ambitions and make Mm -hmm. sure that you are well-rounded and that you're um, seeking God first and that, you know, all things will be added upon upon you if if you you do those sorts of things. Um, So I think it's, it's a struggle at the same time, but one worth pursuing. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. How about you, Sean? So I was absolutely inspired by Joseph Smith uh, and his quest to know God, this this faith that he could come to know God. Uh, he studied Hebrew, and I don't know if that's why I studied Hebrew, <laughs> but it certainly didn't hurt that uh, the prophet that I admired so much had studied Hebrew. Well, so then this this quest to seek after, much in the ways the Psalms express, I will yearn after that relationship with God and then to feel, honestly, to feel filled by that relationship, to feel that God was willing to reveal himself unto me as Joseph Smith had promised. But then uh, the other aspect of it that flows from that, and, and this is why I love literature so much and biblical literature probably foremost, but all forms of beautiful literature, to understand the human soul, to understand God and to understand the human soul. This quest to know God and to understand those around me, I find so fulfilled as I study the scriptures and as I seek after him. And the reason why I'm asking is because I just love seeing how we all pursue different paths, yet the Lord is still able to communicate to us and use us through whatever endeavors uh, that we pursue. And specifically with the Psalms, they really understand that it's all about bringing us back to Christ. So thank you so much, Lance, Sean, for what you've been able to add to this discussion. And hopefully the viewers out there can, can really learn from these topics. The first one, Psalms as prayers of deliverance. And then of course, because of the Savior's mercy, I can be forgiven of my sins. And thank all of you for watching at home. Again, we want to remind you that if at any moment during this episode or discussion you have felt impressed to do something, to act, that you will take the courage and follow its promptings. And please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.